Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins looking at our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Best. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, good morning. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jennifer. Dr. Best comes from us, highly recommended, as usual, by our frequent flyer, Dr. Rachel Salas. Rachel says, oh, my gosh. This Macy scholar, Jennifer Best, she's great. You have to have her in the podcast. She's doing awesome work in med ed and GME. She can talk about so many things. You have to get her on. So lo and behold, here's Dr. Jennifer Best. Dr. Best is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and the Associate Dean for Education and Accreditation for Graduate Medical Education at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington. So again, welcome, Jennifer. We got it all. Uh, And I know you are like soup, like everybody, Uh, maybe even more so, though. You're working on a master's program. You've been up since 430 this morning. You've got a lot going on. Macy Scholar. But you have so many cool things. And when we were talking um, before I hit record here, You'd mentioned things that we've never had in the podcast before. And I would love to I'd love to learn about a thing, a bunch of things, but we're gonna kind of kick it off with how you, you're an MD, got involved in graduate medical education. What was education always a passion in your heart? Um, or did you kind of get enticed into the field? And then we're gonna kind of just do a little tickler to folks, wait and see. We're gonna be talking about some cool things Jennifer does around story work belonging and mindset, personal development, growth and development. So a lot of interesting things about cognitive load, identity integration, really cool things. So stay (laughs) tuned. But Jennifer, kick us off. What got you into graduate medical education? Well, thanks for, first of all, for having me. And secondly, for asking that really good question. I do want to lead by saying I um, I'm a first graduation, uh, first generation college student. And so I didn't actually have a lot of models in my family. I see you nodding your head as well. So that's, you know, I think that yep. does present some unique challenges and, you know, it has allowed me to resonate with many of my learners in that regard. Um, but, you know, I found my way by way of a, a declared theater major to medical school, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, and then to residency in internal medicine. And in residency, I think I had a a pretty natural kind of easy relationship with uh, myself as a potential educator. And I sought a year as a chief resident. Um, and I liked about that year, what I liked was not only the delivery of content and hopefully kind of creative and effective ways, but also really supporting learners at a really deep level in what I consider to be one of the most trying times of their life and probably the steepest curve of their development. And so, you know, with that kind of in my back pocket, um, I moved into a role as an associate program director in internal medicine, um, really with the goal of supporting learners and mentorship being kind of at the at the core of that. Like, what does that mentorship dyad look like? And was privileged to do that for for several years before I had the opportunity to come to the system level, whereby I felt like I could, um, I think, maybe work more effectively to remedy some of the system issues that residents really had distress around, right? So I, I kind of closed my circles with your know, relationship with patients, relationships with an individual resident, and then functioning within a program and a system, which has been a really nice um, kind of expanding circle model for me. Jennifer, this is so cool. And I am just fixated on one word you said, theater. And I can't help but like, I am a theater buff. I've taken acting classes. 
I have a season tickets to Every Man Theater here in Baltimore and the Hippodrome. I just saw Funny Girl. And it was That's amazing. And Moulin Rouge coming up. So anyway, diversion here. But my point in kind of roping us back to when you said theater is the the layers that we all have as human beings and how mm-hmm. fascinating it is that first of all, you you mentioned that. Because I have, you know, I coach a lot of faculty members and their whole identity is like, who am I? And who was I expected to be? And right. what was I expected to do? And I should do this and I should do that. And they should all over themselves. Yes. <laughs> you are talking about theater, first generation college student and exploring and being being an adventurer and then finding this place where it was just an organic, natural evolution of your gifts and talents brought you here. So I love, first of all, just weaving in the complexity of who we are as people. And and so this to me leads into the how, how you were talking earlier. How do we integrate our identities into who we are and how we bring the fullness of ourselves and the multidimensionality in our yes. lives? Yes, I, I really believe at my core, the deepest part of me, that unless we can do that, we are going to struggle for longevity in our careers. Um, I feel that the world is sufficiently complex that we can't keep track of who we need to be in a given setting. And so, you know, at the most basic level, I would say that one of the ways I've tried to do that is to just bring my whole self to my work as a clinician and as an administrator and a manager of non-physician teams um, to kind of create that permission for other folks to do the same. And so, you know, for better or worse, I'm I'm kind of a what you see is what you get type of person um, in the hopes that that creates a safe space for other people to do that as well. And, you know, I bear, as, as we all do, many different identities, um, you know, within society and within my family structure and my family of origin, right? So there's lots of things that I'm bringing. Um, that's true of everyone. And we can choose to talk about it or we could choose to ignore it. Um, but I've chosen to talk about it and make it uh, kind of a key part of the projects I've chosen to pursue in my career. Oh, Jennifer, I love it. Can you share with us? So somebody's listening going, what does that look like bringing my whole self? I mean, I don't understand it. Of course, I'm bringing my whole self. I'm standing here in three dimensions. I am what I am. I'm a clinician. I'm an investigator. I'm an educator. I'm an administrator. Of course, I'm bringing my whole self. Can you maybe give examples of what that looks like or what it doesn't look like or what happens when we don't do that so we can distinguish those roles and those, you know, ecosystems? Yeah, I think that's a really fair question. And I want to also lead as I do with kind of many talks. I think, you know, we have to acknowledge our own positionality in this work, right? And so I come to this work bearing a lot of privilege and I, and I rate related to my identity and my background. And so I really just want to name that not everybody in our environments feels that sense of capacity to show up wholly. Um, And so in, in saying that, I think I'm offering that as the aspirational state and probably not the real state. Um, You know, so I, you asked for some examples. So I would say that one of a practical example in the clinical realm, maybe in the supervision of learners, would be to say something like, you know, I had a really challenging night last night, um, you know, with my teenage son. I have two boys. I've got one in college and one who's a teenager. And, you know, we were up working through XYZ and I'm coming to work today and I'm just not feeling like 
I'm ready to be my best self. I feel on edge. Mm. You know, I feel like I'm testy with people. And I just want to kind of own that within the context of our work together, because I feel like I want you to hold me accountable to that. Oh my gosh, how brave. So that's, you know, and I, but I think actually what, what I've heard in response to that is, you know what, I'm so glad you said that, right? My boyfriend, my girlfriend and I, we had a big fight last night, right? And, and I'm just kind of feeling that as well. And so not only does it create kind of a moment of like mutual transparency, but also a real solidarity in that, like, now we're accountable to one another to say, like, we can actually do this day together. So that's maybe one really practical example. Um, you know, I would say that um, asking people about their backgrounds and their unique interests within our environments, our learning environments, is a really important way to uh, both better understand in kind of a, a humble inquiry mentality what people bring, but to to give them the space in a space where they often do not feel like an expert to be an expert on their identities, their cultures, their backgrounds, their unique hobbies, their areas of interest or scholarship, right? To kind of create opportunities to center that separate from the work that we're sharing together. I find that that's also really powerful. Wow. So work me through a situation where I'm I'm in right away putting myself into an example of I'm in a committee meeting or I'm in a impromptu hallway meeting after or before rounds. And, you know, I'm the expert, I'm leading the meeting, it's my project, it's my clinic, it's my whatever, whatever. And how, what are some questions or how might I invite that, um, Hmm. that sense of vulnerability? Like, how do I create that? And, or maybe, and I'm always kind of trying to look at the reverse, what would be a bad way? Maybe that's easier to go, here's where this would go wrong. Oh, yes. We don't do that right. Yes, I actually, that's a really, I actually like that counterpoint because I do think that this could be fraught. I would say that all of these endeavors would begin with some sort of basic investment and like, let's just get to know each other, right? Like, how do we come to this time together? Like, what did we do before? Where are we going after? What are our goals that are immediately related to our work, right? Um, I think some some discussions around expectations and individual as well as shared goals. I've I've said this before in some other settings, but one of the things that I like to do with my teams is to say, what do we want our team to be known for? I want us to just take a minute before we start. Like, you know, we're going to have individual goals. But when people talk about the Medicine A team, you know, in the hospital, and we just happen to overhear what the nurses or the physical therapists are saying. What do we hope to hear them saying? Oh, I like and I, it. And I give everybody a post-it and they write down, kind of reflect, and then we share to kind of create a mental model around the type of presence we want to be in our hospital and in our learning environment. And so, so any of these endeavors to create space for people to be their own authentic self would begin with just some basic level setting. And I would say that um, as a sidebar, and I can see where this is going to go, this 4.30 morning is going to catch up with me. So (laughs) you're going to have to keep me on track. But um, in some work I've done on belonging, one of the things that really fosters kind of that sense of belonging is the most basic thing, which is introductions. People do not introduce themselves to each other. And, you know, I spend my time in clinical and administrative environments. And I would say that within the administrative environments, we're better 
at that. But in the clinical environments, people are often called by their specialty name, and we don't even afford each other the basic courtesy of a given name. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty problematic if you think about it. So so using people's names, I think, is another really powerful way. Um, when people use my name, I think I feel um, seen and acknowledged in a really different way. And when I've seen people that do that really effectively, that's been something that I've I've hoped to um, to uh, grow into bigger yeah. skills myself. Yeah, it seems to me like it's easy on Zoom to skip over that as well. For sure. And when you put everything in the context of time, 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 so rare, it's so such a precious commodity, nobody has enough of it, or so we perceive in, in reality and perception, that you click on the next meeting Zoom, and you see, you know, I see Jennifer Best, I see Rachel Sal, I see familiar faces, and there's maybe a couple there, and you just kind of like that I don't know. And you just yeah. power into it, and you get into it, and then you got That's a couple right. faces there who don't say anything, who look like the deer in the headlights, they're disengaged, they're probably multitasking because we didn't take the pause, the moment to be like, recenter, as you said, level right. setting. Who are we as a group? Yeah, we know the Hopkins mission maybe, mm-hmm. but what are why are we here? Sure. And who cares? And who are you? And what is everybody bringing to this team right now to this effort and, yes. and where where are we maybe missing some nuggets because we're so you know heck bent on getting to the finish line that we're powering through, right. pushing through and we're missing opportunities to not only feel better about you know our work personally but to it have interrelationships and new ideas and new connections because it's always rush 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 go 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 so yes. I think I love the the simple kind of like no brainer of introducing yourself. It sounds so common sense, but I think a lot of times we we scoot over it. And even Jennifer, you're making me think even in groups where we do know each other, if there are a bunch of you on a zoom or in a meeting and like, I've known them for five years, level setting to, Hey, what, how y'all doing? What did everybody do this weekend? That kind of like, okay, let's just kind of take a moment relax we're human beings it really does kind of bring a different um tenor or a different energy to a to a meeting when you just start with that all right let's all take a take a breather here yeah i i love that so you know i think that if people don't feel like they are kind of seen and acknowledged at the most basic level any any efforts to go deeper with folks i think will be um, less effective, shall I say. And so I think one way to goof it up would be to kind of like laser focus in on somebody, put them on the spot, right? Ask yeah. them something that you haven't actually established credibility, grounding, some relational sense of trust. Like that's mm. that's really mm. pretty important. So I would say that in my experience, if I'm thinking about my last time on clinical service, which was just a couple of weeks ago, I had a, an amazing team. But you know, you you basically I, I use the analogy with my team um, that we're like a sourdough starter. What? <laughs> which I realize sounds really strange. And I'm not a baker. I like to cook, but I'm not really a baker. But my sense of a sourdough starter is this so, sort of amorphous, everlasting sort of life-giving substance 
that people dip in and out of over time and that we exist as a unit in time. This is kind of meta. This is kind of meta. <laughs> Go for we, it. we exist as a unit in time, but there and we're pulled out as a starter. So like to make a certain loaf of bread, right? But there will be people that come after us. And I think sometimes we don't we don't acknowledge the uniqueness of what it is we're trying to bake together. So I think that starting with the together allows you to um, move toward the individuals within that loaf of bread. Oh, oh, I love it. I love it. I love metaphor. And again, I've never baked bread, so you can oh, do yes, what you, you want have. with that. Up here in your brain, you bake so many loaves of bread. You're reminding me of back They're in the crusty day. and oh, golden. The we called it Amish friendship bread. And it was something like that. I remember, gosh, that was back in the late 80s, 90s. Amish friendship bread. There was a, a starter thing that you shared with friends. And every week, you'd have to put something in it. That's sugar amazing. or something. And then it would like do all kinds of chemical things. And then for a series of weeks, you had to grow this thing and then yes. put it up and then make the bread. But then you always kept something and shared it with friends. But so, so this is such great work. I love the metaphors of the bread. I love the idea of um, the enduring nature of relationships. And that's what I was thinking of. I was thinking of how we oftentimes um, we overlook the, the importance of relationships and relationship building and, and legacies and how that can have an impact because, you know, teams change and, and people, staff come and go and colleagues come and go. But as you said, if you start with, you know, what is the goal of this team? What do we want? What is special about us? What do we want to accomplish together? We're on this journey for maybe a short time. Mm -hmm. This is a season of our lives where we're all together. You know, how can we make the best of it? Um, how can we support each other when I'm feeling crunchy or you're cranky or, you know, life happens to us. And then at some point our paths may diverge and we may yes. say goodbye to each other, but while we're together, what can we do to, you know, elevate our work? And what you said earlier also made me really kind of step back and take a moment to recognize that I'm an off the charts extrovert. So I'd be like, Oh, Jennifer Best, tell me all these stories about your life. And I'll, you know, where were you born and where your parents and this and your first generation, me too. And you might be like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, the getting permission, as you mentioned, or kind of Im implied earlier, that building the relationships and the trust can sometimes it's on different paces for different people. A hundred percent. Well, that said. empathy, that empathy toward, you know, is Kim going to be, Oh, yeah, she'll get right to the quick of it really, you know fast paced, but somebody else may be a little more guarded. Yes. For good reasons. And so you don't want to be full on. Tell me your life story. <laughs> That's right. And I think, you know, the reading people well piece of it, I, I think, you know, as I have grown as a leader, um, I think it's really important to pay attention to how we attune to others. Um, and I think people know when they're being attuned to in a way that actually creates that space, kind of like this idea of like the holding of a container that anybody can put anything into, but the container will hold. It's strong enough. It's big enough. There's nothing that's going to like overflow it. And I um, I think attunement is interesting because, you know, as we talk about some of the things that I've done in the past that have related to work around individual stories and where stories have kept people stuck, they have been in those spaces where people haven't been seen well and attuned to well. And in some ways, you know, we like to kind of pretend that we come to our professional work as 
again, different people, but 100% we don't. And that was kind of our original thesis here, which is how how are we reenacting some of those those interactional patterns that we that are very familiar from even the youngest times? Um, and I think even just kind of naming that for people, um, I can think of a, a resident that I worked with one time, and she uh, was just really struggling with some feedback that uh, had been given in the context of clinical work. And uh, the sense was like, it was so hurtful. It just went so, so deep, you know, mm-hmm. and the more we talked about it and the longer that we talked about it, it became really apparent that there's something there that, that was just, it wasn't about the words. It was about how that statement, that feedback connected to something really primitive, like at her core. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think, you know, that kind of spurred some actually some of my driving interest in exploring what it meant to work with people and unpacking their stories, but also to realize that that's at play in every difficult conversation that we have in our environments. Right. Oh, Jennifer, thanks for bringing that up. Stories that we tell ourselves, these like ticker tape beliefs that we have, the the iceberg metaphor of someone Mm -hmm. may see this part of the iceberg, but they may not see a huge, vast part of the iceberg that's below yes. the waterline. Um, the past two years now, my colleague, uh, Heather Brode, from formerly the Ohio State, she's a coach now, and I'm a coach, and we designed this career development coaching camp that we offer for mid-career women here at Hopkins. And so we've done it two years in a row now, and part of our weekend retreat, it's a weekend experience, is the stories. And that's so we amazing. talk about the stories we we told ourselves, you know, at early adulthood and childhood, early adulthood and going through school, that if this happens, then that happens. Yes. The beliefs we hold that are grounded in our values Mm -hmm. and what the values and the beliefs we hold, how that, how those help us and how they can hurt us sometimes. hundred percent. And being aware. And, and when I was talking with my coach, I recognized something that I had never pulled a story together. Like you talked about Jennifer is when, I was asked to, I was reflecting on a kind of a difficult situation where I was asked to do something. And my initial immediate instinct was, oh, are you kidding? Now I have to do this. Right. And upon reflection, the, um, it was not meant for me to do it all by myself, but Kim Skorupski from childhood, for whatever reason, I remembered being sitting in the hallways of Villa Maria Academy High School for Girls <laughs> on early November, having huge poster board, um, newspaper print rolled on the floor, making Christmas decorations, holiday decorations to decorate the hallway. Because I'd said, hey, someone had said, Kim, you know, would you like to take charge of decorating the first floor? Every class had the, a certain floor to decorate. And I was like, sure. N- thinking that it was on me to do yes. all of so oh, I would spend no. like all weekend. All the little snowflakes. I did it all myself. <laughs> like, and nobody, somebody said, oh my gosh, you guys did it. I'm like, you guys, it was me. Oh, I could have asked someone else to help me. I didn't realize this. And then that is carried through now into my late fifties where someone says, hey, Kim, can you right. take over <laughs> new faculty orientation? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all by myself. No, Kim, you can ask for help and put teams together. So that's a story I tell myself that I would yes. feel like I am solely responsible for things, which is ridiculous. So yes. Now I've eaten yes. up enough time for stories. No. You tell me uh, <laughs> how you in, encourage story work in your GME and in, in your daily life. 
Yeah. So one, I guess maybe a practical example of a project that I've worked on um, during my career is a development of a curriculum related to the skills of speaking up when folks observe patient safety concerns or professional behavior concerns in their environment, right? And I think, you know, if you look through the literature, there are many approaches that people have used to try to enhance this behavior, right? Because there's good evidence to suggest that failure of communication is at the root of most errors. And, you know, we, we all know that. But it's not actually the words that people don't have access to, right? What they don't have access to is kind of the internal motivation to speak. Um, and so kind of in thinking about like, what is that about? You know, I, I'm sure somebody here has has mentioned the name of Brene Brown, who's well known kind of in this shame space. Mm. But it really kind of fundamentally has to do with our ability to have some shame resilience, right? And so one of the things that we built into our curriculum was an exercise adapted from some of Brene Brown's work that explored desired identities at work. So we asked people to think about like, what is the best way that people could perceive you at work, right? Like, what is the idea? It's a little bit like my my work I did with my team, but like in the best case, when they see Jennifer Best, they describe me as X. So what would the worst thing be, right? Like, how don't I want to be seen? Yes. And that usually is informing that behavior in a way that we we are less likely to speak, but is very powerful. Um, and so that's that's an example of just creating space to reflect on, like, have I ever thought about what I want my desired identity to be at work? Like when other people think of me, like usually we haven't, actually our systems don't really support, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but those spaces for reflection. Yeah. Uh, but that is, that is one example that I can think of. I love that. I love that because you're, yeah, you're making me think of leadership courses where we've had 360s done on us and mm-hmm. you know, colleagues, how would you rate Kim on her, this, that, or the other. And you get some real hard truths of, oh my gosh, I never realized that I was going <laughs> to be so aggressive. Oh, really, Kim? You doesn't think that you come across sometimes as aggressive? I'm like, oh, okay. So I'll work on that. But you're right. We have these metrics, these metrics of our success in terms of increased rank and roles and responsibilities and leadership opportunities and grants and papers. But personally, as a person, as a colleague, how do I show up minus all of those accolades and roles and titles and alphabet soup after a name? What kind of person do I present as and how do I come across yes with my patients, my learners, my colleagues, my, my, my. Yes. And how does my behavior impact my affiliation with my team? Because we at our core are social beings, right? We need each other to survive. That is like, that's like 101 basic, you know, safety, sort of safety in the pack. Right. And so I, I think that we often are very um, wary of acting in ways that we think will threaten our affiliation with our team. And in medicine, an education team is really, it's really everything. And when you take the time, Jennifer, like you were describing earlier, to level set the authenticity of this relationship and being honest and being open and creating these safe spaces. And if I were to then take the time to build these relationships, then when in, inevitably in the future, when I do have moments of, listen, I'm going to apologize up front, I didn't get a lot of sleep, or I'm feeling really stressed right now, there's a lot of things going on, I'm going to ask for your 
support to help me out today. Yes. And I'm going to ask for your forgiveness, a little bit of grace and mercy. Yes. Then it's more willing to be given to us so that when you, we don't have to always be on and be perfect because we know that I'm not perfect. I had a tough week. Thanks for showing up for me, Jennifer. You really picked me up when I was down and you, you could, you ascertain when I was going to like maybe go off and was short tempered and you came in and you were, you forgave me or you kind of rescued me. And that meant a lot to me because you saw me and, and were willing to kind of, you know, be a safety net for me. And if we yes. do that in the beginning, then we all kind of have this sense of like, okay, exhale. I don't have to show up today yes. as this fake person who's always has it, always has it together. And it just such takes a burden, I would think, off of us to be like, all right, I mean, I can do this. Yeah. I'm not alone. I, I can That's right. I feel that. Do you feel that? Totally. Totally. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's interesting because, again, stories, right? But I think another piece of that that we haven't talked about is what do we do when relationally things are strained or broken, mm. right? Mm. Do we have the capacity and the commitment to repair, right? Are we willing to do the hard work of diving into those, like, facts, ego, identity conversations, mm to to restore relationships and i and i think well i have a lot that i think about this but i think we often avoid that opportunity and assume it will be too painful when in reality that is the thing that actually strengthens our team and shows us that we can indeed do really hard things not on our own of our own strength but like as a unit mm. um i think that that's at the core of some of the challenges we have around bidirectional feedback Right. Mm -hmm. Why people don't give direct or honest or timely feedback. And there's so much fear around providing formative information. I think we are afraid of breaking relationships and yeah. we don't trust our capacity to fix them. You're so you're so right. That happens over and over. And all the faculty I coach, that is one of the things that I think a lot of us struggle with is just you just want it to go away. You know, the conflict avoidance. If I just yes. ignore it, it'll go away. And as we all know. The things that we kind of avoid are sometimes going to explode in our faces because it just, again, I think it comes back to time. Yeah. Like, really? Then that means I have to process this and sit down and think about this. And I got to set another meeting and Jennifer and I are going to have to hash this out. You know, what was the impact of what you said? What was your intention? And what was my role in it? And I don't even want to do it. Who's got time for that? That's it'll right. be all right. Yeah. And, and. <laughs> Yes, sometimes maybe it'll be all right. And you can kind of look at each other and go, all right, you're cool, I'm cool. But sometimes these things, it's just, you know, little by little, it just kind of cracks the foundation and you just keep patching it, patching it, patching it, or not looking at it. Yes. And then, so one day you got a serious pro problem on your hands. Yes. I Yeah. And I do think that those sometimes are those situations where one member of the dyad maybe had some lack of attachment, you know, at some point in the past. And the idea that a relationship, you know, can't remain healthy or can't be restored. It's like just too painful to go there because they've been mm. disappointed before. And so, you know, I think if I think about my own reactions and difficult conversation settings and other professional challenges, it's really important to do your own work of exploring your story, right? And mm. in the course I took, they talked about this notion that you really can't take people any further than you you're willing to go yourself. Ooh. 
And sometimes just being able to provide kind of some language to that within those conversations um, that that owns your responsibility and even kind of some of those deeper tethers. I think, again, it's for some people, I found that there is a little bit of a key that kind of cracks cracks some of the conflict, right? And really lets the mutual humanity, um, I think, be restored, mm. or at least just the beginnings of that. Jennifer, can you tell us, um, give us some hints on how to give constructive feedback and then thinking about your leaders and how what kind of culture do you or have you established with your learners or your colleagues in a group? I'm envisioning in our leadership training, we'll say maybe like this, well, the smallest thing you can do to have the greatest impact would be, all right, no one leaves any presentation or anything you led without saying, tell me one thing I could do to improve what I just did. Yes. That's one thing. So yeah. versus saying, hey, Jennifer, um, how did I do on that? You're like, oh, you did great. You did great. As I'm running down the hallway. Hey, mm-hmm. Jennifer, how was my talk? How was my grand rounds? As I'm running by you, the, uh, of course, my assumption is that you better not be telling me anything bad because we're just passing each other by. So I don't really <laughs> want to hear any serious. I'm not going to hear the punchline. Yeah. Versus yeah. saying, Jennifer, what's one thing I could do to have improved mm-hmm. my grand rounds presentation? And then you like, if you set that as like the expectation of we all, everybody says, what's one thing, then you get used to the fact of, well, I can't believe they told me I could improve that. Well, that's just what we do here. We all look for one thing. So what are the kind of things that you instill in your learners or in your cultures and in your communities? How do you give that feedback that makes it, you know, constructive and being mindful of people's stories and making sure that that is, you know, again, for the good, constructive Mm -hmm. feedback. I I adore this question and it's really timely because I would say that like many large institutions, this is a nut that we have yet to entirely crack, you know, and we have data from the ACGME surveys, right, that suggest on the faculty side and on the resident and fellow side that everybody wants more and better feedback and that very few people feel psychologically safe in offering that feedback, right? And so I see you nodding again, there's some solidarity there that feels good to know that we are not alone, but this is something that we've chosen to take on as an institutional priority for this upcoming academic year um, in developing a series that will largely focus first on faculty, our program directors and core faculty, um, when we hope with some extension to learners on the program side, uh, but really to move beyond some of the um, mnemonics and structural strategies for providing feedback to really spending time on some of these concepts we've already alluded to, which is kind of like, what is it about feedback that threatens our desired professional identities? Like, what does a difficult conversation look like, right? How do we give feedback across differences when there's, you know, stereotype threat, perhaps for an underrepresented learner on the one side and a faculty member on the other side who who may feel like there's concerns that they will be perceived as biased or discriminatory mm-hmm. in that feedback. People, people aren't having those conversations because of some of those fears. And I think right. one thing we're going to look to do in this series is to make those things explicit and to create some workshop opportunities around cases for people to practice some of those skills. Mm. Um, so that's that's one big thing. I think 
Um, we, as a GME office, uh, a school of medicine, actually, um, those of us who have roles in the dean's office are fortunate to have access to a 360 evaluation structure. And I know that not everybody in our system has that, but I have so benefited from the opportunity to receive feedback from um, peers that are selected and unselected. Um, and, and just, I think, for folks in the community to be asked by leaders for their feedback is really important. And for us to acknowledge the feedback to, to those participants, whether or not it was constructive, right? right? And so acknowledging in the moment feedback as feedback and kind of owning Owning that it landed with you, I think, is just an important habit of mind. And then the last thing I'll say on this is I think um, we need to be credible providers of feedback, right? So we can't say the one thing and behave in another way. And there's uh, good data, again, for learners that the, the most credible feedback comes from the most respected clinicians, let's say, in a clinical environment, right? So we need to mm -hmm. actually, fortunately or unfortunately, we really need to be role models for our feedback to land in a way that makes change. And that's and that's in and above the things you're you're very rightly identifying around actionable feedback and the chance to improve right before an assessment. Those are so important too. Yeah, this is great stuff. Dr. Jennifer Best, I think this has been so valuable. I loved chatting with you. I'm going to um leave some maybe wrap up you know, concepts or thoughts to you. But folks, if you'd like to have a conversation or reach out to Dr. Jennifer Best, her email address is jabest, J-A-B-E-S-T at uw.edu. But um, as Rachel Salas promised, yes, Dr. Jennifer Best is fascinating. We've learned so much. I love how she has shared her story and been so honest with us and talking about bringing our full selves and our identities and positionality, attunement, story work, shame space, all these really cool concepts that are all designed to help us with personal growth, development, showing up, a um, little bit of grace and mercy, giving ourselves and others, <laughs> but really kind of um, enjoying the time that we have and trying just to make the best of it. So Dr. Jennifer Best, I'm going to leave some closing thoughts to you. And thank you again for pushing through after being up since oh dark 30 for your master's program work. You are so welcome. And again, it's such an honor to have been invited. And, you know, the 430 may have worked in my favor. We'll never know. We'll never know what it would have looked like to start at a reasonable time. Um, I, I think I just want to leave maybe with the comment that um, the system is big and it's very, very complicated. And we won't be able to fix all that needs to be fixed, regardless of our roles, right? Regardless of the amount of time that we're given. I, And that does not mean that we get to advocate the responsibility for those things. So as we work on improving a very bulky, inefficient, inequitable system, I do really strongly subscribe to this notion. I was saying this to a colleague yesterday, like, what is our patch of green? Like, what is our little area that we get to keep green, right? And water and tend and pull the weeds, right? While we work on these other larger problems. And for me, I think professionally and personally, I think that really, that uh, lives with interpersonal relationships, right? And again, it seems like it's it comes down to something really simple, but every relationship, every encounter 
we have as an opportunity, particularly when we don't know what folks are bringing. Um, and much of that is invisible to us. So thanks again for what has been such a fun conversation. Oh my gosh. Patch of green. Patch of green. I, I love it. We are all in this, uh, planting our little patches of green and, and taking care of our little gardens together. Yes. What a tapestry. What a huge <laughs> garden. We're all tilling together. Love that. Dr. Jennifer Best. No, thank you. This has been so enriching. I really appreciate you. And Folks and friends, if you are out there, don't hoard your wisdom. Get on the Faculty Factory podcast and share your wealth with everybody else, just like Jennifer Best did. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.